And I welcome you once again to the Daily in Christ podcast. I'm Mark Van Oos. And if you've been traveling with us in the study of the book of Hebrews, I think we're seeing together just the great power of God himself, the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ, the faithfulness of God. And uh, today we're going to wrap up in uh, chapter 6. We are going to be looking at verses uh, 13 through to the end of the chapter. But before we do that, by way of a little bit of review, in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to back up a few verses to verse 9 that says this, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. And so there is indeed... Uh, things that happen because of God and his grace that actually do go along with this great salvation that we have. They accompany them. Verse 10 says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, once again, these verses speak of the better things concerning those in Christ, those things that go right along with salvation. One of the things that we saw there was the fact that their lives were fruitful lives. Uh, They were lives that uh, showed the work and labor of love, ministering to the saints, And yet there is this common theme that goes through Hebrews, the the theme of persevering in hope. And remember, biblical hope is not a, boy, I hope so, I wish that would happen. But biblical faith has the idea of being my, my, the future outcome. My future is bright and secure as the promises of God himself. And we're going to see that even more dramatically as we go through Hebrews chapter 6. Well, today, uh, and what I just said there was a bit of review. Today, we're going to begin in verse 13. And it says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end to all disputes. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, these verses right here are, are actually the engine of our faith walk. Now, remember what it said there in verse 12. It was speaking of those who, and let's uh, take a look at that, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Verse 13 begins with an important word. It says, for, 
And whenever you see that in, in the Bible, that is speaking and giving the reason behind the previous uh, verse or two. And verses 13 through 20 here of Hebrews chapter 6 give us the reasons for the, pay, for the uh, faith and patience that inherits the promises. So what are those reasons? Well, in verse 13, I've already alluded to this, for when God. I, I just love that. For when God. You know, Hebrews is all about God. It's all about what he has accomplished. Hebrews is about God himself, and it's so focused on God. As a matter of fact, the very first word in the book of Hebrews, at least in the New King James, is this word, God. And the book of Hebrews is so focused on the faithfulness and the goodness of God. It is so focused on the promises of God, the oaths of God, the covenants of God, specifically the new covenant. It just makes things so clear if we will just pay attention to this. Now, this reminds me of a huge pet peeve I have with a lot of Christians today, or at least what I commonly hear. And I hear very little emphasis about God's faithfulness, God's promises, and trusting in what he has already done. But I hear talk all the time about how we need to commit more. We need to try hard. We need to strive. And one of the most annoying things, and it's thoroughly unbiblical, is I will hear unsaved people. I will hear a preacher, for instance, call to the unsaved to come to Christ. And the preacher will say this, commit your life to Jesus Christ. Commit your life to Jesus Christ. Well, that's wrong on every point. Number one, uh, the Bible nowhere talks about committing one's life to Christ in order to be saved. It says faith is required. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. In fact, if you look in the New Testament, the language of faith, the, the words faith, hope, trust, believe, occurs some 677 times in the New Testament alone. There is this key principle that says the just shall live by faith. But the Bible does not say anything about commit or commitments. In fact, if you do a word search on the word commit in any form, you will find, and I'm not kidding, that 93% of the references referred to committing sins. So much for our commitments. Hebrews is not about our commitments. Hebrews is about God's commitments. And that makes all the difference in the world. So once again, Hebrews chapter 6 in verse 13 locks our attention to God himself. For when God. And again, the word for is there. The reason why we have confidence about better things that accompany salvation. Now, I'm going to read again verses 13 through uh, probably 16 here. And it says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. You know, 
It's so easy for us in our flesh to focus on Abraham and his faith. And yes, Abraham was definitely a man of faith. But this text here is not about Abraham's faith, but about God's faithfulness. We cannot look to man here, but to God. Not just here, but really anywhere in the Bible. And the whole necessity of faith brings up, well, other important things. Romans chapter 4, verse 16 says this, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Do you see it? The reason why faith is necessary is that it would be according to grace. And grace is God loving you, blessing you, and accepting you, not because of you, but because of his goodness. That's grace. And it says that it's according to grace that it would be, the promise would be sure to all the seed, guaranteed. You know, in verse 12 of Hebrews 6, it says, uh, where it says, imitating those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, that is based upon God himself. God's absolute faithfulness and integrity, God's promises, and then God performs what he has promised. In fact, uh, again, just for a moment in Romans chapter 4, which also talks about Abraham and Abraham's faith, it was locked in on God's faithfulness, God's ability to perform what he had promised. Here in Hebrews chapter 6, in this passage, God does two very powerful things for us. Number one, God makes a promise. This speaks of God's fidelity and faithfulness. God doesn't lie. God doesn't break his promises. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 says this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? And again, that's in uh, Numbers chapter 23 verse 19. So the first thing that God does is he makes a promise. The second thing is that God swears an oath. Now an oath speaks of swearing to perform as promised. So there's a promise that, that, uh, that there's going to be a certain outcome that's going to come. There's going to be a certain consequence. But the oath is swearing to perform as promised. Um, examples of oaths. How about this one? Uh, speaking of general examples of oaths. How about this one? I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's right. That is the oath of office of the President of the United States every time he is inaugurated. Did you know that that same essential oath is very similar to the ones that are sworn by every elected official in the United States? I held a local municipal office a while ago, and I had to swear a similar oath. You know, when people do that, when the President of the United States raises his hand and swears this oath of office, 
what he is saying is, I will perform my duties as the president of the United States. Well, God swears an oath because God says, I will do, I will perform as I promise. God says, I will unfailingly do as I have promised. And then we see here in uh, verse 14, saying, surely blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. See, this is the outcome of God's promise and oath. And it says, surely. Now this, the Greek word behind the one word, English word, surely is two words, which means a much stronger form of confirmation, meaning not just a plain yes, but I will definitely do this. Surely. This is the only time these Greek words are used like this in all of the New Testament. And again, God, God's ability and his emphaticness in saying surely speaks that he is faithful and he is true. He does not lie. When he speaks, he means it. When he promises, he really does it. And then the, this outcome of God's promise and oath, God says, blessing I will bless. This is a Hebrewism uh, for superabundantly bless. Not just a little blessing, but an overflowing blessing. You know, not only are you blessed to the max, but as a result, you can be a blessing because of the overflow in your life of God's blessings. And yet, this superabundant blessing is not based upon our performance, righteousness, or worthiness. It wasn't based on Abraham's performance, righteousness, or worthiness. He made many serious mistakes. But God saying, I will superabundantly bless is based upon God blessing us, his character, his integrity. And then it says there in verse 14, and again, it's quoting back in Genesis, multiplying, I will multiply you. And again, this is another Hebrewism, this time meaning superabundantly multiply. Now, you understand that God's math is not addition. God's math is multiplication. He's not doing one, two, two plus two equals four, you know, or, or five plus five equals 10. It's more like five times five is 25. And again, this blessing that was given to Abraham and by extension to those in Christ, and we'll see how that is the case in a moment, is based not on our performance, righteousness, or worthiness for God to multiply unto us, but it's based on God himself multiplying us. God is indeed a super abundantly blessing and multiplying God. That's the nature of him. And that is his nature toward us. He's not being skimpy. God is blessing in a spectacular way. And Christian, this is meant for you because you are in Christ by God's grace. Remember, 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, of God are you in Christ. And then in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, it says this, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through 
faith. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Do you see what the outcome of the blessing is based upon? Jesus redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. Again, read it for yourself in Galatians chapter 3. And uh, I would encourage you to start in verse 10 there. Well, then in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 15, it says this, And so he, Abraham, had patiently, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So there was a, a patience that was involved. We know that a large number of years elapsed from the time that God promised Abraham a son, an heir to all that he had. It took many years for that to happen. And the theme of patience comes up over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews. It comes up quite a bit in uh, the writings of Peter as well, First and Second Peter. There is something about the walk of faith that depends upon the faithfulness of God and the grace of God. Because oftentimes we don't see the outcome of the promise. We don't see the promise necessarily being fulfilled immediately. And so there is patience. Abraham was relying upon God's uh, promise and performance. And it says that Abraham obtained the promise. Now I want to jump over for a moment once again into Romans chapter 4. And I had mentioned this before, but Romans chapter 4 really gets inside of uh, Abraham's head where it says this. Verse 18 who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, Abraham did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old. In the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver back and forth at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Listen to this verse 21, and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Read that for yourself in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. So we can see that even Abraham had to have patience. And we see in Romans chapter 4 that the nature of that faith that held on was not relying upon his ability, he was completely unable to fulfill the ability of having a son, but he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was certainly able to perform. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is the end of all disputes. Let me ask you a question, and this is a very, very important question. We hear about uh, the promise that God makes and swearing an oath. Well, since God never lies, why does he even bother to make a promise and swear an oath? I mean, after all, doesn't it say in James 5, 12? But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgments. Well, God doesn't need to make a promise for his own benefit. He doesn't need to swear an oath for his own benefit. He's not somebody who, whose integrity is at question. God has infinite 
perfect integrity. So the reason why God makes this promise an oath for us is not for his own benefit, but for ours. That's what it says here. It says, and let me get back into uh, Hebrews chapter 6. Listen to this in verse 17. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Do you hear it? Isn't that powerful? God himself is determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, to you, Christian, the immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel. You know, God isn't saying, okay, I'm going to do this. Oh, no, wait a minute. Let me think a minute. No, I don't think I'm going to do that. Or God doesn't do something and then change his mind back and forth. He is immutable. He's unchangeable. And so it says right here in uh, verse 18 that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Now, what are those two unchangeable things? One, his promise. Two, his oath. And you notice also it says right here in verse 18, for it is impossible for for God to lie. Let me just get into this a little bit. Uh, You know, I I hear people say that there's nothing impossible for God himself. Actually, there are a number of things that are impossible for God to do. Uh, It is impossible for God to deny himself. It is impossible for God to lie. And there are a number of other things too that are just plain contradictions of who he is. We can trust God because it's impossible for God to lie. Why? Because God himself is the source of goodness. He is the source of faithfulness and integrity. So if you are in Christ by God's grace, you are an heir of the promise. That, and God makes the promise. He swears the oath to show you more abundantly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you, the heir of promise in Christ Jesus. And so as a result, the heirs of salvation, you, my friend, and me, uh, verse 18 says that we have strong consolation. The second part of verse 18, the Amplified, I like what it says, have mighty indwelling strength and strong encouragement who have fled for refuge. I love the beauty of that picture, fleeing for refuge. Now, a person flees because they're trying to get away from something. And a person is fleeing for a refuge because they are seeking a place of protection because they are in great danger. I think of the the book and the film series, Lord of the Rings, and there's this dramatic scene in the second book of the battle at Helm's Deep. And Helm's Deep was this uh, rock fortress built into the side of a mountain. I mean, it had never been um, breached 
throughout generations. And everything is going wrong in Middle Earth. And uh, the uh, demonic hordes of the uh, armies of Saruman are bearing down upon Helm's Deep. Uh, They're going through the land and purging them. And the idea is to destroy all of the men of Rohan, all the, the people of Rohan. And so all the inhabitants of Rohan flee for the mountain refuge of Helm's Deep. It's quite dramatic. That's the idea. Just like they had to flee from danger for refuge. Well, what's the danger that's to us? Well, the wrath of God is danger number one. For those who are unsaved, they are a target for the wrath of God. Ephesians 2 verse 14 says, Uh, Verse 3, rather, says, who by nature are children of wrath, just as the rest are. So we flee for refuge. And what is this refuge? It says in verse 19, let's read verse 19. This hope we have. Okay, it says uh, at the end of verse 18, have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, we have this strong consolation because of God's promise and God swearing an oath of performance. We have fled for refuge to a refuge called hope. And that hope, verse 19, that hope that's set before us is like an anchor of the soul. And so there's like another picture that comes in here. You know, back in the old days, when there would be a a ship that would be caught in the storms in relatively shallow waters to keep that ship from being broken up on a a sandbar or something like that or on rocks, they would anchor those, drop the anchors on those ships to keep them in place, to keep them from bashing against that certain danger under the waters. We have an anchor of the soul that holds us in place, just like an anchor holds a ship in place. You think of these huge uh, ships, you know, they might be uh, one of those oil tankers or maybe an aircraft carrier or maybe one of those large uh, cruise liners. They drop the anchor. It holds that big ship in place, even in storm-tossed seas. And it says here in verse 19 that this anchor for the soul is sure and steadfast. It won't break loose. It holds us so that nothing can tear us away. And then it says, this anchor enters the presence behind the veil. I'm reading in the New King James, and presence is uh, capital P. The presence is speaking of the holy of holy place of God. It's going into that place, to the inner sanctum of God, the holiest place of all, the inmost sacred place of God. And then it says there in verse 20, where the forerunner, speaking of Jesus, has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, Jesus himself has gone in before us, making the way That's what Hebrews is all about. It's about Jesus. It's about what he has accomplished. And 
dear listening friend, Jesus has already gone through that veil. He's already made the way so that we can go in. Jesus has gone through as high priest. And not a high priest who's here for a little while and then dies and then you don't have one until they select another one. But this one has the power of an endless life. He is high priest for you and me forever. And it's not according to the priesthood of the law which was imperfect, incomplete, and never finished. And the rest of Hebrews unfolds that, at least verses uh, or chapters uh, 7 through chapter 10. But you see, it's according to Jesus came in as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of righteousness. Melchizedek means literally king of righteousness and king of of shalom that's what and this will be coming out much more in hebrews chapter 7 so what do we have as a result of god and his goodness and his integrity what do we have as the result of god making promises and fulfilling them of God raising his hand and swearing an oath to perform and actually doing it. What do we have? My dear friends, we have stability. Because we have this anchor of hope for our souls. Boy, we need that stability these days. You wake up in the morning, the world has changed. And these days it's changing so rapidly, it's hard to keep up. But we have stability in this great God, the rock of ages, with this anchor that's holding firm. You might be feeling like your life is being buffeted by trials, by difficulties, by pressures, by temptation. But you, dear Christian, as I, have an anchor that's holding firm and secure. What else do we have? We have safety because we have this refuge of hope in Christ. You know, Helm's Deep in that movie and in the books, The Lord of the Rings was actually breached by Saruman. But this refuge that we have cannot be breached at all. Why? Because it is the refuge of the omnipotent God. God who is all-powerful, nothing is stronger than him. Third, what else do we have? We have access into the Holy of Holies, into the inmost presence of God. And it's all because we have Jesus, the forerunner, the high priest forever, the high priest of the new covenant, the high priest according to the line of the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Now, friends, take that strong assurance and security that we have that's based upon Jesus and what he has accomplished and lay that up upon the common teaching of the weak, mealy-mouthed, church of today that talks all the day long about our commitments. You need to make a commitment. You need to be steadfast. The Bible doesn't talk about that. The Bible talks about God, his faithfulness, his integrity, his commitments. Dear friends, he makes a blood covenant with us. You can't get any better than that. 
God doesn't need to make a promise. He doesn't need to swear an oath. He doesn't need to make a covenant. His yes is yes. His no is no. But he is doing all this for our benefit, for your benefit. Away with this religion of commitments and its religion. Away with this religion of striving and struggling. Who cares when you have such stability because of that anchor of hope? Who cares when we have such safety because of the refuge we have in Christ? Who stinking cares when we have access into the Holy of Holies by Jesus, our high priest? Who cares? And to to honestly believe that a Christian could lose their salvation, do you know what that means? That means that my sin is stronger than Jesus' righteousness. That means there's something that I can do that can reverse the finished work of Jesus Christ. My dear friends, that is an abomination. That's blasphemy. I'm sorry, I have to be so frank, but it's true. God is demonstrating in such a vivid way to us I mean what I say, my child. I mean what I say when I, when I make these promises for you. I mean what I say when I, when I say you are an heir according to the promise. And Hebrews chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 is going to spend time talking about the basis of our assurance, which is Jesus as our high priest according to to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Oh, Father, such love that you have for us, Lord. Such perfect love. Such unfailing love. Oh, Father, what goodness is yours and yours alone. Forgive us, we pray, and we thank you, Lord, for forgiveness that we have in Christ already. For the times when we have in any way doubted that, Lord. You are so good and you are so faithful. And Jesus is perfect. And all that he accomplished for me, for every person in Christ, is perfect and perfectly accomplished. Father, I pray that you, by the Holy Spirit, would grant unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. And that the eyes of our heart being enlightened may know the hope of our calling, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your exceedingly great power toward us who believe. To your name and your name, the matchless name of Jesus, be glory alone. Amen.